0: Texas Bible in a weekly video we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Um, we are in week number nine of our study of the book of Revelation, um, and this week we're going to start tipping our toe into the realm of things revelation that is a bit controversial, um, and we're going to do that at the end. Uh, we're still going through the seven letters, but something, a topic is brought up here that doesn't really come up much else, but it's something that uh, is usually associated with Revelation. And so we're going to talk about that at the end. Um, but I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I want you to stick around to there. there. Um, but we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13. And there's actually a couple of these topics, these hot-button issues that are brought up just in one single verse. But other ones are uh, dealt with later in, in this book as well. So we're going to deal with one big, controversial topic. Um, and so I, I recommend you stick around. Otherwise, um let's get into this uh so as always um none got to know the three things about revelation john either john the apostle or one of john's disciples wrote it they're too similar not to be um its purpose was to encourage like that's key to remember as we read this and especially as we get into these topics that are a little bit more you know hot hot buttons i don't you know like they're more controversial like it's it's important to remember that the whole purpose of this thing is to encourage Christians when they're facing difficult times or when they're facing questions like remember that um and it's an apocalyptic literature which means it reveals a bigger reality than the one we see um and so this is a uh, it's a it's a letter but it's a narrative so this this has a story so it has a beginning a middle and an end um and so thus far John the writer is on the island of Patmos just off the coast of western turkey um, it's still there to this day, uh, and it's there that Jesus visits him and says, Hey, write these things down um, and give it to these seven churches in western Turkey. And so we have been going through these seven initial letters, but think of the whole book as a letter to those seven churches. He he has things he needs to address to each of these churches individually, But also, the whole thing is written for them and and, and thus for us as well. Um, If you're confused about any of that or you want more details on any of that, go watch the previous videos. Uh, Like I said, this is week number nine of this. We're going to be in a long time. So it's it's better to get caught up now than to wait and get really far behind. Um, So that being said, um, each of these letters follows a pattern. um, And so we're going to go through that pattern again. Watch last week's or previous weeks to learn more about that pattern. But otherwise, I'm going to assume you've done that. So let's get into this. Um, Starting in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, Write this to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and nobody shuts, who shuts and nobody opens. I know your works. Look, I have given you an open door right in front of you, and nobody can shut it. Since you have a little power, you have kept my word, and you haven't denied my name. Look, this is what I will do to the Satan synagogue, who call themselves Jews, but who are frauds, nothing of the kind. Take note. This is what I will grant you, that I will make them come and worship before your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. You have kept my word about patience, and so I will keep you from the time of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test out all the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming quickly hold on to what you have so that nobody takes away your crown anyone who conquers I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. They will never go out of it again I will write on that person the name of my God in the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem Which comes down from heaven comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So Philadelphia Um, It's a city that's more on the circle, right? Like, So if you look at the map that we shared, like uh, the cities make make kind of a circle, um, and we're going through them clockwise, starting down at about 6 o'clock. We're just making our way. I think we're closer to 3 o'clock now on that circle. But they're all major cities, cities that um, the ruins are still there. Uh, Not all of them are still inhabited. Some of them are, uh, especially like Ephesus, are completely empty. There's nothing near it. Um, Ephesus has an airport near it. So, yeah, there's that. Um, but for the most part, these are cities that are, you can still go and visit them, um, still go and visit them. Sardis, or Philadelphia, sorry, was a city that, that had been rebuilt recently right before this letter. It's a city that, just like today, is in a very um, earthquake-active region. Central Turkey is known to have a lot of earthquakes, and so this city is one that has been rebuilt several times. Now, if you remember, the, the opening of each letter, um, Jesus kind of sets the theme for what he sends to the church, for the message for the church. And so in this one, he says that he is the one who has the key. He has the keys to the city. Now, in, in modern times, you know, you might see somebody get the key to the city, and it's like, oh, cool, there's somebody special, and the city's honoring them. And it's really meaningless. But back in ancient times, the only person who had the keys to the city was the king. Like, you could unlock any door, and nobody could lock it back, because you were the only one with the key. Like, it was a big deal back then. So Jesus says, I am the one with the key, the key of David. Now, if you're not familiar and knew this Christianity thing, David was one of the kings in the past. Um, He was actually the second king of the nation of Israel, second legitimate king. We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, But he was the second legitimate king, and he was, by all accounts, the greatest king Israel ever had. Um... And it was to him that God made the promise that said, uh, a descendant of your throne will sit on the throne of my people, be the king of my people for eternity. Uh, it was a messianic promise saying the Messiah would come from your descendants. Um, and it's, it's, it was fulfilled in Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I have the key of David, he's, he's asserting his royal authority as that promised king. And he says, he is the king who opens and shuts. And this is also a reference to a prophet uh, that came after David. He said in Isaiah twenty two twenty two, it says, And I will place on his shoulder this Messiah, the key of the house of David. And he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And so basically what what Jesus is saying here is he is the one who has the controls. He's the one who opens the doors and shuts the doors. But the doors to what? I mean, Jerusalem at this point was a city-controlled multiple times over by foreigners like other people besides the kings of israel have had the keys to that place for a good long time now what does jesus have the keys to well jesus has the keys to everything like that's that's what he's saying here he is the one who controls everything the doors to heaven when we get to chapter four you'll see that jesus opens a door for john to walk through to see the throne room of heaven jesus is the one who opens the door uh, but, but he also has, he opens doors for opportunities in our lives, and in churches lives, and in and just, he's the one who provides. He opens doors, he shuts doors. You know, that's why that cliche saying is out there, that when the, God opens one, closes one door, another door opens. Like, you know, Jesus is the one that, that has the keys that, that controls life. He is the one who is in control. And so our pattern goes from Jesus addresses the church. He describes himself to set the theme, and then it goes to, I know what you're doing well. And so for Philly, he says, you know, here's what I know you're doing well. You're, you're, you're patient. You're being faithful. You're being obedient. You're, you're, you're good. This is one of the few letters that, that Jesus has nothing but good things to say. There's no bad things here. That's awesome. Like, this church is doing well. Um, and he says that they have a synagogue of Satan in their city as well, just like Smyrna did. Remember, Smyrna said that they had a, a synagogue there. Smyrna was the largest Jewish population outside of possibly Alexandria, Egypt, and 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 Jerusalem itself, right? Massive Jewish population. And that Jewish population had set itself up to be a roadblock for Christians. I mean, you, you just think, and, and and this is the situation. Both groups are claiming to be the people of God, the people of Israel. One group says we are biologically, we are the people of Israel. We are the descendants of Abraham. Another group says we are the people of God, the people of Israel, because we are the people of faith. The Jewish folks uh, outnumber the Christian folks. There'd probably be several hundred, if not thousands of Jewish folks in each city, and they have buildings, and they're established, and they have connections. Christians, maybe a couple dozen at the most, no buildings, no connections. There might be some here and there. But but these they're basically in a fight to, to to basically prove who is the people of god and who isn't and so the synagogue of satan as jesus calls them are a group of, of jewish people who are out to basically squish this christian movement they don't like it because they both see themselves as the same group of people at this point in history they don't see a separation there it's just people who either accept jesus as the jewish messiah or not and so they the in smyrna this group was was actively persecuting uh, the christians there the church there and so we see here in philly that these Christians have overcome this persecution. Like, they're still in the way. They're still a pain. They're still making life difficult. But this is a church that has overcome that. They've been faithful through suffering and persecution. And Jesus says, you know what? This is what I'm going to do for you. Like, if you continue to remain faithful, continue to keep my word, is I will make them come and worship at your feet. Now, this doesn't mean he's going to make them come and worship their feet. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is anti-Jewish now, as some first and second and subsequent century Christian writers have tried to make the argument. This is not an anti-Jewish statement. This is who is the people of God statement, and that's Christians. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not anti-Jewish. He is Jewish, right? Like he was he grew up in a Jewish home. He kept all the Jewish rules. He uh, is Jewish. Like you can't take that away from who he is. But he's saying that they are attacking his people, his church, those who accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And one of the prophecies, lots of prophecies actually from the Old Testament, Stated that the 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 pagans, the the non people of God, would come and bow down and worship God at the feet of God's people. Except the Jewish folks always thought it was them, because they were the people of God. But now Jesus is saying, no, it's 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 my people, and those Jewish folks would bow down at their feet. And this is just a massive like reversal. This is something that would would have sent a Jewish person like, just foaming mad, just spitting furious. How dare you say that? We aren't going to bow down at anybody else's feet to worship God. They will bow down at ours. That would be their reaction. But he said, no, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to have them bow down at your feet to worship me. And so he says, this is what you have to do. This is what you have to say. You have to stay patient, have to stay faithful. He says, look, you've done that, and I'm, opening a door for you. So he goes back to his initial description. He says, I've opened this door. What is the door he's opened? Well, some think it's the door uh, that we see in chapter four for the throne room of heaven. I don't really think it's it. I think this is the door of opportunity. I think this is the door that Jesus has opened for the gospel to advance in Philadelphia. This is the door that says, go and, and share the gospel. There's opportunity here. Like that's, that's what I think is happening, saying, yes, you've endured this persecution, and you've taken your hits, and you've suffered loss, and you stayed strong, and you stood up. Well, guess what? Now it's time to make advances yourself. Now it's time to make inroads into the darkness in the world around us. Go, share the gospel, attack, advance, do what you have to do, move, uh, capitalize on this opportunity. Don't just stand there. I think that's what Jesus is saying: is that when opportunities are given to you, even though you've suffered, even though life's been hard, even though you're heartbroken, continue when the advance is on. Advance! Don't stand still. That's the thing about battles, especially old school battles, where it was armies, pitched armies, marching against each other. You you can't stand still. You lose if you stand still. You have to constantly be advancing, right? And so that's basically his message to this church in, in Philadelphia. Normally here there would be a negative. But there's there's nothing. And so we get to the solemn reward and promise the, the promises or rewards are kind of they're sometimes both for all churches. And so here he says, here's the rewards for you. If you stay faithful, you conquer. He says, number one, you'll be a pillar in my temple. Now, ancient cities back then would have had tons and tons and tons of temples in them. We know that they're, we can still find the ruins. Some of them are still standing. Uh, we know that, that the temples were a big part of it, except the difference for us is that we are the temple. Right? This is Jesus looking forward to a time when the whole world becomes his temple because he says to them you'll never even have to leave the temple, right? So there's a couple ways to look at it, but I see that as when creation is remade, there is no place that isn't God's, right? There's no place that the devil has authority or anybody else has authority but him. The whole world becomes his dwelling place. Remember that creation gets back to where it began. It began with God's people in the place he created for them in his presence. Uh, the the temple was the place where the, the, the gods or the deities would reside. Uh, and then the Jewish temple was where God met with humanity. It's the most important building on the planet until Jesus. After creation is remade, God's presence is everywhere. He's here. It is all His. So I, that's what I think he's saying. I think he's, you'll be part of God's people in the place I create for you in my presence. Um, And a, a key thing to remember, too, about that. We like to think of uh, of creation that we—some people think that you go to heaven. You don't. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you don't go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Heaven is simply God's dimension. Earth is ours, right? They overlap, and there are thin spots, and that's where you see things like the stoning of Stephen. You see him—he gets to see the throne room of heaven. Uh, where we read Revelation, there are lots of thin spots that John is brought to. When the curtain is peeled back and we can see into God's space. But the simple matter of the fact is, God cannot be in our presence because we're imperfect, right? God is perfect. His presence does not allow our presence to continue to exist. And so he has to have heaven. That is why it's even there, because it is separate from us. Um, and so uh, when creation wraps up, all the things that are deviant, that are corrupted from God's initial design, will be gone that's what happens it says that heaven and earth will pass away but most scholars don't think that means that it's like boom gone history like what it means is that creation will be reworked to where the corruption and death are gone but the good aspects the things that are part of God's design live on so the good that we do lives on basically is what 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 that means and so when the present evil age ends and the, God's new golden age, which has already started to burst forth like stars in the night sky, fully ends the present evil age, that's kind of violent. right? That's what we're going to see a lot. And that's typically referred to as the tribulation, as hard times, um, the birth pains, you know, you it's violent, it's painful. Um, that's typically what this is thought of here. And so we get to verse 10 where it says this, You have kept my word about patience, right? So this church has kept my word about being patient, about enduring. Um, you can Some translations put this as, you have kept my command to endure, and it captures the idea pretty well. He says, you have kept my word about patience, and so I'll keep you from the time of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test out all the inhabitants of the earth. And this is where we find our controversial topic. Um, actually, we find a couple of them here. Um, But basically, we're not going to talk about the tribulation. Why? Because that's going to come up more in the book of Revelation. So we'll we'll talk about that more later. Um, But the, the controversial thing we see here is keeping this church from the time of trial. This is one of those verses that people who ascribe to the rapture point to and say, See, we're not going to be here for the tribulation, for the trial times, for the great transitioning from present evil age to God's golden age. And so, is that what that means? Does that mean we're going to be taken away? So basically, what I want to do from this point on is we're going to kind of we're going, we're going to discuss the rapture. Let's talk about it. Um, it doesn't really come up more in the book of Revelation. So this is kind of our last chance to discuss it. Um, but some things about it before we get into this. Um, Revo- the rapture is one of those things that that Christians can debate on. We can talk about. We can point to sources about. We can. Um, we can write books and everything else about—that doesn't have an effect on your salvation, right? So at, before we get into this, I want you to, to just promise yourself. Make this promise to yourself. Make a promise to God that you're going to make unity your, your purpose here, right? That even if you disagree with what I say or what I teach, you understand that this is not an essential topic. This is not a topic that affects anybody's salvation, Right? So I need you to make that promise. I need you to stop right now. If you can't be okay with it, if you can't, if you come to have a different point of view than I do, if you can't agree to disagree and we still be brother and sister or brother and brother in Christ, then you need to just stop now because I don't want to sow disunity amongst any churches, um, especially on a topic like this that you're along for the ride. I mean, that, that's really the bottom line here is that you're, you're just along for the ride. If If I say the rapture is real and you don't and I'm right, well, then we're just going to hang out in the clouds and you're going to have a shock look on your face, right? Or if the vice versa is true and if if I say it's not real and you say it is and I'm right, well, then you're just going to be like, I thought this was going to happen and it didn't. It doesn't have an effect on salvation. So commit to that right now and we'll get into this. All right, you good? Sure? All right. The rapture. Um, Revelations 3.10 is normally a supporting verse. It's never the main verse for somebody who, who... Says the rapture is true. Um, the rapture typically goes back to First Thessalonians 4:16. So let's go ahead and read that, and uh, and we'll, we'll discuss the rapture, what it means, and what it is, and whether or not we think it's real or not. Okay. So verses 16 through 17 of chapter 4 of First Thessalonians. This is Paul writing. Um, he says the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a shouted order, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of God's trumpet. The Messiah's dead will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be snatched up with them among the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And in this way, we shall always be with the Lord. So, again, two things. Number one, this is not a salvation issue. This is not an issue that has any effect really on any part of your Christian life. There's no, like if you're prepared for it, if you, your life would look the same as if you don't think it's real. Okay, Because we're both living in the light of Christ's return and being ready for that. Okay, got it? Good? Okay. Number two, the whole purpose of these verses is to encourage each other during suffering times, during hard times, to, to encourage each other. And so if all they do is inspire division and disunity, you need to go back and you need to do some serious self-evaluation maybe work on some personal skills, maybe go work out, get some exercise, let out some frustration because these verses are supposed to be encouraging and used to encourage each other, okay? That's what verse 18, the very next verse says. It says, so comfort each other with these words. If these words aren't comforting to you or you can't help but get angry, you you need to go talk to somebody, okay? Because you missed the point, all right? So uh, understanding the rapture. Basically, the two schools of thought on this, the groups that say it's real and those who say it's not. And it really comes down to how you interpret these verses, whether you take them literally or not. Now, the pro side simply says that this is to be taken literally, that, that there really will be a moment that when Christ returns, before the, the, the bad things happen, the tribulation, the suffering, the testing, before that happens, Jesus will collect all of his people out of this world to save them from it, okay? That's, that's the pro rapture side. And it comes down to your understanding of the Greek words "toreo ek," which means to pull out of, to save out of. right? Tereo ek." "Ek" means out of. Okay, um, like an ectoplasm, right? So it's out of, right? Uh, so that, that's basically the the reasoning for it. Now I have to, again, united. Don't get mad at me. Agree to disagree. I have to. I want you to understand that I don't. I don't think the rapture is real. but it's not most topics that we're going to discuss that are hot button issues i've stood on both sides of the fence right i've kind of seen both sides of it and supported both sides of it right for most of these issues this is one i haven't i've never i've never seen the rapture i've never thought man that's that's real i've never been convinced of it okay so i just i want to throw that out there so that you know where i'm coming from this is not something i've ever been truly convinced of um and so, I want to give you the three big reasons why I don't think the rapture is actually there. Why I don't actually think that's what this means, um, and, and again, if, if you are pro-rapture, if nothing else, this will help you understand the other side of the argument and help you form your own arguments better, you know, like if, if you're dead set, the rapture is real. But if not, uh, if you're on the fence somewhere, whether it's real or not, hopefully this will sway you to, to see it my way, but again, if not, it doesn't matter, okay? Um, So the first reason why I don't think the rapture is in the Bible is the author's patterns, right? So Paul's point in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 is the same as in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 through 54 and Philippians 3, 20 and 21. And in both of those sections, it's pretty unanimously agreed upon that they're talking about the change, the physical change that happens to us when Christ appears, when we're raised from the dead, if we're not alive when Christ comes back, Uh, that... And it's the same thing that happens to all of creation like we talked about a little bit ago that the things that that god doesn't want here that aren't part of his design go away with the bad things so the corruption and death go away our new bodies will be physical right god created the world to be physical it didn't like become physical when it broke it was always physical and it will always be physical but it wasn't designed to die and it wasn't designed to break down and it wasn't designed to deviate from god's design to be corrupted so when, in those two verses, it's pretty well agreed upon that they're talking about we will be given this incorruptible, deathless body that will last for eternity. It won't wear out, no more back pain, blah, 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 okay? Um, that's what that means, that we'll be transformed into that or be given new bodies like that if we don't have a body because we're dead. Um, 4, 16, and 17 is talking about the exact same thing, right? It's not talking about something different it's talking about the same thing so if you go and you read those verses again first corinthians 15 uh 51 through 54 and philippians 3 20 through 21 you'll see that they share the same same point all right so they have the same point and then uh first uh, 16 and 17 and first thessalonians those verses have three humongous references that are very easily placed right against it uh, the first one is moses returning from mount sinai so jesus comes down from the clouds moses when he met with god on mount sinai it was covered in clouds. Uh, Jesus was gone away for a while, and then he returned. Moses was gone for an extended period of time, so long they thought he was dead. And he comes down off the mountain and meets with his people, same as Jesus comes and meets with us. Uh, so there's a huge parallel there that every Jewish person reading First Thessalonians would have picked up on immediately. Like for us, two thousand years later, who weren't raised um, with the Jewish scriptures uh, as, as a core part, the core part of our lives, we, we miss this. And so that, that's the, those who folks who take it literally are, are missing out on this. Um, the second one is Daniel 7, in which the people of the Saints Most High, uh, you know, the, that is the, the people of God, they're vindicated over a pagan enemy, and then they're raised up to be with God in glory. I mean, this, the, the metaphor, um, as Dr. Wright says, Tom Wright says, he says, uh, it's applied to Jesus in the Gospels, right? So it's a metaphor where the Most High is, is rose up like a son of man. He's given vindications. So Jesus was conquered, he was killed, but then he rose from the grave and defeated death. He defeated the enemy, right? Here, it's applied to Christians who are suffering persecution, that in the trying times, they will be vindicated, right? It's a direct parallel to Daniel 7. And third, um, this is a secular um it's a secular reference that everybody that paul's original audience would have picked up on is when an emperor comes to town everybody in town left town and met him out on the road and escorted him in so this is another thing that uh, the meeting lord in the air so think of open air if someone says we're going to an open air concert they don't mean up in the air they mean out in the outside it's the same kind of deal that you're going to go meet god out on the road you're going to meet jesus out on the road and escort him into the new city into the newly remade world so we are remade the corruption death is gone the world is remade corruption and death is gone and we go out and escort jesus into the new jerusalem into the new creation that's that's what this these verses are referring to um, and it would be weird uh, if if paul and john were referring to uh, were, were being literal When the rest of their patterns, when they're talking about this stuff, they they get very figurative. I think the biggest issue here is that we see that there's 2,000 years of a gap, and we don't pick up on these references where they're not familiar with them. You know, I will be the first to say my weakest part of my knowledge of the Bible is the prophets. Without study, without people wiser and more knowledgeable than me pointing these things out, I wouldn't pick up on them either. But once somebody has shown them to me, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that makes way more sense. It fits with Paul's pattern of constant references. It fits John's pattern of constantly referencing Old Testament and cultural things. So that's the first reason is that there's 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 a whole lot of references that fit within these verses that don't point to a literal rapture. It points to these other things of us being remade and meeting with Jesus in the new creation because that's what we're talking about anyways, All right, After a time of... Of suffering right so the second reason so the reason number one is the author's patterns right so it'd be weird if they weren't being if they weren't drawing on other references number two is the logical sense right it would be illogical to expect god to act like this now I, as i say that i'm not going to put god in a box god does not stay in our boxes right as soon as you come up with a hard and fast rule outside of the foundations of christianity that's typically when you find that God operated a little bit differently that one time in this one place and then you find that one and then you find like ten others like you can't put God in a box God is God it's his world it's his story it's his movie we just are in it okay he does what he wants and so all we can look to is patterns in the way he has revealed himself and throughout the Bible we find that God does not tend to zap people out of their problems he doesn't tend to, to just kind of save people with a wink and a snap and they're gone out of their problem. Like, we don't see that. We don't see that people are just zapped out of suffering. It doesn't fit with what we hear from Jesus. It doesn't fit with what we hear from the prophets. It doesn't fit with the stories of the heroes of our faith. It doesn't fit with any part of the Bible. It would be something new. And I'm, again, as I just said, God can do something new if he wants. But I'm just saying if we're looking at the history... And the way God has revealed Himself to us, this would definitely be something new, all right. Um, and so, like for instance, Jesus in His priestly prayer, prayer, John seventeen fifteen, He says, "I'm not asking that you should remove my disciples and those who follow them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one." So Jesus is praying this big priestly prayer. Uh, the last thing He's going to do before He He goes to the garden get arrested, blah blah blah. And in it, He says He doesn't want them to be to be saved from the the trials that they're going to go through from the suffering they're going to go through he says he just wants them to be saved from the enemy one in the midst of those trials and suffering right so jesus himself that's what he says um the second thing is in verse 10 he says that there's going to be testing all over the world so back in revelation he says there's going to be testing all over the world he says i'm going to save you out of tereo ek why would it be testing if there was nobody that could pass the test Right, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. And again, God doesn't operate by logic. So, you know, I understand that argument, but again, if we're looking at patterns of God as how he has revealed himself, why would he test the whole world if all the people who could pass the test are gone? It doesn't fit. Think of it more like more like some of the examples we see of, of, of suffering, right? So in the ten plagues, right? Let's go back to Exodus. The ten plagues, the people of Israel living in slavery, they are suffering. God could have twitched his nose, and boop, they're in the promised land, most powerful kingdom on earth. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, they suffered. And then when the plagues hit, the people of Israel, it's not like they discovered you know, off-bug repellent when the flies hit. It's not like, they, like the frogs were like intentionally avoiding Israelites. It's not like they didn't hear the women and the mothers and the brothers and the dads crying when they woke up the next morning and the firstborn of every house and of every animal was dead. No, they were there for all of it. They were in the midst of it. They were saved through it. They were saved out of it. But they were there. Look at Paul's life. Paul. Paul. <laughs> If you know anything about the Bible and New Testament history, you know Paul is kind of a big deal. He kind of did a lot. He kind of deserved a lot. He was very humble. He didn't get to escape any suffering. As a matter of fact, it seemed like he was just a magnet for it. How many times he was beaten and shipwrecked and arrested and tortured. Look at Jesus' life. Jesus literally asked if there's any other way to do this. Please, let's do that. But your will be done, God. Jesus... Was tortured and suffered but in the end He was brought through it. So yeah, we don't see a logical pattern of God's pulling his people out of suffering, but rather that he gets them through suffering. So that's reason number two. It doesn't make sense with the rest of Scripture. And the last reason is the historical origins of the doctrine. Now, I'm part of the Restoration Movement, Churches of Christ, Christian Church. Some of those are real weird. Okay, if you're not part of us, if you're somebody completely just you found me on the internet, cool. Um, the, some of us are real weird, and we, we, those of us in my kind of part of this movement, are like, eh, <laughs> we don't really know them. Um, but for the most part, our, our our movement was built around the idea that. Christianity had gotten so twisted and convoluted in so many different versions and disagreements and sects and all these different like divisions amongst us that we just want to go back to the beginning. What did the original church say? Well, let's trace everything we do back to the original church, to the original apostles, to Jesus himself. And if we can't find it there, we have to have a real good reason for doing what we do. I mean, and there are some things, like church buildings. The original church didn't have buildings. It's justifiable to have a building, okay? You know, it's not that, Right. But that's, that's kind of the core of, of why we do what we do and why we believe what we do. And so when we have a doctrine, something that we believe about God, the origin matters. We need to know where it came from. If we can't trace especially a doctrine about God back to Jesus or his apostles, it needs a real fine-tooth comb to be gone through to see why we believe it and where it came from. Um, and so when it comes to the doctrine of, of the rapture, uh, we, well, let's trace it back. Let's see how far back we can go. And the research out there says that the earliest person we can find is Ephraim the Syrian. Ephraim the Syrian is a saint, according to the Orthodox and the Catholic churches, right? Uh, they both revere him as a saint, even though they both very much don't agree with the rapture either. Um, and part of that is because some of his writings weren't translated until very recently, in which he says, yeah, the rapture, I think that might be uh, might be something, right? And so he lived from 306 to three. 373 um, AD. So he lived about 200 years after the Bible was finished, after the last words of the Bible. So we have about a hundred year gap that we can't find anybody who said anything about a rapture. Um, and even he, it's really just one line, and it wasn't widespread. Like we don't find a bunch of writings that go along with it. So it wasn't something that you could go into your local church and hear somebody talking about it was something that was, it was more than likely just something he thought up and wrote down. We don't even know if he stuck with it, right? Like, like we don't. We just know that he wrote it down this one time and thought, you know, maybe this is the way, what was meant there. Um, and it wasn't widespread. There weren't people teaching this. Um, and then there's relative silence until Joseph Mead, and he lived from 1586 to 1638. So we've got a long time, well over a thousand years before it's really talked about. And Joseph Mead popularized the idea. Now, wasn't it wasn't that it was widely embraced, but it was popularized. So he, Joseph Mead put out this book, and it, it got the idea out there. So people were aware of it. But again, it wasn't widely accepted. It was just well known. Think of this kind of the way people think of um, the Westboro Baptist folks. Almost no Christians agree with them. Like, I, I would say that no real Christians agree with them, but almost no Christians truly embrace what the Westboro Baptists teach about God's hatred right? But everybody knows about it. Everybody knows what they teach. Don't agree with them, but they know what it is. That's kind of the way that Joseph Mead's book was received. It was insanely popular for its time, um, but it wasn't widely embraced. It was just widely taught, okay? Um, and so after that, it doesn't become widely embraced until the Millerism era, which if you've never dug into the Millerism um, time or in the early 1800s, you need to. It's very, very interesting. It It birthed um, the Pentecostal movements, it birthed uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, it birthed um, the Charismatic movements. It A lot of modern American Christianity was birthed out of the Millerism of the early and mid-1800s. And basically, just in a nutshell, there was one guy um, named Miller who was claimed to be a prophet and shared all these prophetic teachings, um, these words from God. Most famously, he claimed to know when the world was going to end and Spoiler: It didn't when he said it would, um, but it, it it birthed a lot of these these movements that kind of share this core value of a literal understanding of the New Testament, especially, um, which is your Pentecostal movements, your your Seventh Day Adventist movements. Um, well, they're not as charismatic, but then your charismatic so they kind of trace their way back, and they these groups under the Millerism kind of umbrella um, they they started teaching uh, Joseph Mead's thoughts on a rapture. And here's the thing, though, is is their teachings and their descendants were almost exclusively in America. And so, to this day, if you were to travel overseas and you talk to Christians and churches that aren't descendant from one of these Millerism groups, like an American didn't go and plant that church or start the network that planted that church, uh, the, almost nobody believes in the rapture. Like the, it's very much an American. Uh, doctrine, which is which is a huge red flag for me. Like you cannot go overseas and find lots and lots of rapture teachings, um, even within the same denomination. It's just it truly is an American idea as far as how it's been embraced. It didn't start here by no means, but the the Millerism and all the, the groups under that umbrella, uh, they're the ones that really pushed it and made it what it is today. What you have been taught about about the rapture comes largely from the early 1800s and subsequent teachings on it. So doctrinally, hist- based on the origins of it, it's, it, for me, that's another no, right? So those are the three reasons. Uh, the author's pattern of constantly drawing on Old Testament references that fit that First Thessalonians verse, uh, the logical sense that it doesn't fit the patterns we see of God in rescuing his people, and the, the historical origins of the doctrine, they're just, I don't, see, I don't see the rapture in the Bible. Now, if you disagree with me, again, These words are meant to encourage, so I hope you—the point is that we're encouraged, that our eternal security is there. It doesn't matter if we suffer or not. So be encouraged. If you believe in the rapture, be encouraged. God's going to save you quicker than I think he will. (laughs) That's what we're arguing about at the end. How quick is he going to encourage you? Either way, you're going to face trials. You're going to face trials. You're going to face sufferings, especially if you are a true blue Christian and you are real about your faith and honest about it. You're going to find suffering. Whether it's the big tribulation or not. So be encouraged. Because no matter what you face, God's got you. Again, if you're right and I'm wrong, I'll see you in the air. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.